Well, having looked at the distinguishing mark or the relation between the Lord Jesus and the Father, the way that we distinguish God the Son from God the Father, we move on to the relation of the Holy Spirit to the Father and Son. In John 15 verse 26 we read, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Note that the Lord Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father. It's beyond the scope of my talk to distinguish between proceeding from and begetting, coming forth. So we won't go there today. It's a matter for further study. But I think what we can say is that the Holy Spirit, because he is not described as a son, doesn't come forth in the way that the son comes forth. There are ways we can do it, but I have to leave that for now. However, he is God, being eternal, and has no beginning and no ending, as we've seen. Therefore, the Holy Spirit cannot proceed from the Father in time. So when the Lord Jesus says, I will um, send unto you from the Father the Spirit of truth, it implies that he's going to be sent in time, doesn't it? But the Holy Spirit can't proceed from the Father in time. If he did, then there would be a time when he did not exist. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must proceed from the Father eternally because he is the eternal Spirit, as we've seen from Hebrews. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit does not proceed from the Father alone. In Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist foretold that the, that the Lord Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and would fire. A verse that is precious to those of us who consider ourselves Pentecostal. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The second reason why the Holy Spirit must proceed from the, Fa the Son as well as the Father is because he is also described as the Spirit of Christ as well as the Spirit of God as the following two verses show us. Romans 8, verse 9 But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. If the Holy Spirit did not proceed from the Father and the Son, then there would be the possibility of a fourth member of the Trinity, which there plainly is not. As we have already seen, 1 John 5 verse 7 is the clearest verse on this point, which is why I spent time demonstrating that it is rightly included in the canon of Scripture. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. However, as we have already seen, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is also a clear reference to the three persons of the Godhead. Matthew 28, verse 19. Another Trinitarian verse we have looked at is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. We do not have any other ways of distinguishing the persons of the Godhead 
than these, which is why the doctrine of eternal generation, the eternal generation of the Son from the Father, and the eternal procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son are so important. Without them, we will be unable to distinguish the persons of the Godhead and would find ourselves defenseless against the Unitarians who only believe in one God, such as the Jehovah Witnesses and the Muslims. Or alternatively, the modalists who believe, as we have seen, that God appears in different modes at different times, sometimes as Father, at other times as the Son, and still other times as the Holy Spirit. I'd like to move on now to look at another error which is, I'm afraid, very prevalent in the evangelical church today. And that is the error of subordinationism. From the 4th century onwards, there has been a teaching that the Son is subordinate to the Father within the inner life of the Trinity. However, as we have already seen, each member of the Trinity is Jehovah. How can Jehovah be subordinate to Jehovah? He can't be. And if he is, he's not Jehovah. He's been misnamed. So it's difficult to understand any kind of ranking within the Trinity without destroying the equality of the persons of the Godhead. During the 4th century, as I've already mentioned in relation to Athanasius, the Arian heresy arose. It takes its name from Arius, who lived from 256 to 336 AD in Alexandria in Egypt. He believed that Christ was a created being and therefore subordinate to the Father. Arians argued that there was once a time when the Son was not. The context of the Nicene creeds of 325 and 381 was to refute this error. I'm not going to go into the details of the creeds because I know there will be many of you who will say we don't want to know what the creeds say but what the Word of God says. So I'm concentrating on the Scriptures, but that is the historical background to the subordination origin. Athanasius, who became Bishop of Alexandria, was foremost in exposing the Arians and contending for the divinity of Christ, and that is why the Athanasian Creed, which came about in about AD 600, some 200 years later, bear, that's why it bears his name. I have to say, I think the Athanasian Creed is a very good creed, and I commend it to you, but as I said, we're looking at the scriptures today. Today, within evangelicalism, there is a move back to subordinationism, which has been promoted by such men, and quite distinguished men, as Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, some of which some of you will have his systematic theology, J.I. Packer, Don Carson, the Anglican diocese in Sydney, and many, I regret to say, in England. It comes about, I should say, as a means of supporting the teaching that women should not be in leadership that should not have anything to do with the Trinity. I stand on 1 Timothy chapter 2 for the position of women in leadership. And I do not believe that there's any verse in the Bible that contradicts what is said in 1 Timothy 2. Any reason why we can't take it at face value. And indeed I suggest that there are other scriptures that support that. We do not turn to the Trinity. Otherwise we end up backing up our scriptural argument for women not teaching men in church with a heresy, which is worse. And ironically, I have spent time with Kevin Giles, with whom I strongly disagree on the teaching of women. 
he is an egalitarian. He believes that men and women equally have roles to teach. But I'm with him on the Trinity, and he has gone a long way to try and expose this error. And I'm with him as he has done so according to Scripture. So it's tragic, really, that in trying to contest a secondary issue, and we must agree that the teaching of women, women teaching is a secondary issue, it doesn't stop them being Christians. I don't agree with it, but I wouldn't break fellowship with them, with a woman who teaches other men. But that's been replaced, tragically, with an error which is very serious. It's a worrying trend, because for years, the accepted evangelical position has been that there is a complete equality within the Trinity, and that there is no hierarchical ranking. An ordering of the Trinity has been recognized from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. But no hierarchy. And I think we can all conceive of an order which is not hierarchical. I've only got to refer you back to our tea break. I don't know whether those of you who are keen for a cup of tea queued for that cup of tea. No one said, well, the pastor goes first, then the visiting pastors, and then last we'll have the newest member of the church. You all join the queue. First come, first serve. That did not make anyone less than anybody else, did it? Might have made the first-year ones first, but that's different. Calling out names by the letter of the alphabet is another example. You probably all had that at school, didn't you? Or you might have done. The alphabetical calling out of names does not imp imply hierarchy. Age might do with the oldest boys first and the youngest boys last. Especially at school where the oldest boys have authority. So there's a hierarchical ranking there. But there are, there are many orderings in life which have nothing to do with hierarchy. And the ordering of the Trinity has nothing to do with hierarchy. We must hold on to that. While there is usually an order in the Trinity, in Scripture, the Father first, the Son second, and the Holy Spirit third, it is not an invariable order. Can anyone put their hand up and mention a verse that shows the Trinity in a different order? We've just had it on the screen, so you might get it from that. Well, 2 Corinthians... 13 verse 14 the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all Amen and then in Revelation 1 verses 4 and 5 the Holy Spirit is placed before the Lord Jesus John to the seven churches which are in Asia grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we see the ordering there. Grace be unto you from the Father, in which what is and which was and which is to come, from the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. It is true, however, that there, are an, there is a number of passages where it would appear that the Lord Jesus is subordinate to the Father. For example, what do we make of John chapter 14, verse 28? You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. 
if the Lord Jesus is equal to God, then how is it that he can also say that my Father is greater than I? The answer lies in understanding that the Lord Jesus was both man and God. When he became a man, he did not stop being God. He was not half man and half God, but fully man and fully God. He added manhood to his godhood. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, we read these marvellous words. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. I should have said between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. For the Lord Jesus to be a man, he must act as a man. Therefore we find that he was tired, hungry, thirsty, and that he was subject to his parents when a child. John, we, the scriptures I've just put out there. John 4, verses 6 to 7. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied, he was tired for his journey, sat, down, sat, thus, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Matthew 21, verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. Luke 2, verse 51. And he, the Lord Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was subject unto them, his parents. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. However, the Lord Jesus was also God. As 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 tells us. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Again, I'm afraid I have to digress briefly. If you're using any other version than the King James or the New King James version, you will probably find that God has been substituted with either who, which, or he. So that the NIV states, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The reason for this is that the Alexandrian text, which was favoured by most modern version, we have it in Westcott and Hort in their translation in 1881, I think it was, of their translation of the Greek manuscripts, we, we, their versions read who was manifest in the flesh. However, this does not make sense because who would refer to the mystery of godliness? Look, at, look back at the verse. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Who appeared in a body? That simply is, is nonsense, isn't it? However, sorry, and the Greek word he, sorry, using translating he doesn't really help us because it doesn't say who he was. It's beyond the scope of these talks to go into the weaknesses of the Alexandrian manuscripts of which Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are the chief examples. Modern versions have, in my view, erroneously favoured these minority readings on the basis that they were taken from manuscripts that were thought to be older and therefore more reliable. We can confidently assert that this verse has correctly been translated in the King James and New King James versions as God was manifest in the flesh. We will therefore expect to see evidence that the man Christ Jesus also showed his divinity in his life. We see this most clearly in the healing of the paralytic because only God can forgive sins. 
In Luke 5, verses 18 to 21, we read, And behold, men brought in a a bed, a man, which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? We see the Lord's divinity in his calming of the elements. In Mark 4, verses 37 to 41, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Lord Jesus was both fully man and fully God. He had both a divine nature and a human nature combined into one person. As I've already said, he was not a mixture of God and man. And this is a vital doctrine if we are to understand how it was that the Lord Jesus was tempted. He was tempted as a man. Notes, it was just after he had been filled with the Holy Spirit. As man, he did not rely on his divinity. He relied on the Holy Spirit, didn't he? Otherwise, he wouldn't have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know he was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. These are complex ideas, aren't they? We just have to hold them in tension because he was both God and man in one person. And he he didn't stop being God when he came down and lived on earth. Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us this, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The Bible speaks of only two Adams in Scripture. I have to catch myself from not copying the hymn writer who describes Christ as the second Adam, because the second Adam implies there might be a third and there isn't. There's the first Adam and the last Adam. So in 1 Corinthians 15.45 we read, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 tells us that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. Every human being is born with Adam's fallen nature and therefore cannot help but sin. As David said in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This applies to every human being that was ever born. This is where the doctrine of original sin comes from. We must hold it. A dear Pentecostal friend of mine abandoned it. We must be very careful. It's vital if we're going to understand the two Adams. To understand why a man sins in the first place, why we can't help sinning, it's because of our sinful nature. And you, you know the child's got a sinful nature because which mother or father has ever had to taught their child how to be naughty? First Corinthians 15 verse 22 tells us that as in Adam all die, so in Christ, sorry, I'm repeating myself, I do apologize, i move on. The Lord Jesus, unlike us, was born without a sinful nature. 
We know this from Luke 1, verse 35, which we looked at in the last session. When the angel Mary, sorry, when the angel told Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The only way the sin of Adam could be reversed in a human being was for God to become a man. And so it is that we have one more Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus was therefore born with the same sinless nature as Adam. Each nature possesses its own will. The best way of understanding that is that, make me ask you a question. As a Christian, how many wills do you have? As a Christian, how many wills do you have? Anyone else? Come on. One or more than one? Yes. Thank you. We have the will of God and we have the will of the flesh. As, as men, we only have, as, as, as non Christians, we have one will, don't we? We have the will of the old man, we have the will of the flesh. But this is, the, this is the contest between the flesh and the spirit, isn't it? And although one nature is figuratively dead on the cross, we have to mortify it so that only the will of God prevails, the will of the new nature. So this perhaps helps us to understand how Christ could have two wills as well. He had the will of God because he was God, and he had the will of a human being. And what he had to do throughout his life was to keep the two together. And the Lord's human nature was tempted. And we know it wasn't his divine will that was tempted. Because James 1 verse 13 tells us, Let no man say when he is tempted... I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So he cannot have been tempted in his divine nature. So it was his human nature and his human will that faced the temptation to sin. Now there is a conceptual argument that, funny enough, I, I only came, became aware of in the last week. as to whether the Lord Jesus could have sinned. I don't know if any of you have come across this. Those who believe that he could not have sinned hold to the impeccability of Christ, whereas those who believe that he could have sinned hold to the peccability of Christ. This is a complex subject because there is a tension. If Christ is impeccable and could not sin, then how could his temptations have been real? I believe this is one of those apparent contradictions that we must hold by faith. Because Christ was unchanging, Hebrews 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever, he could not have sinned. And yet in his human nature, his temptations were real. I would prefer to say that while conceptually he could have sinned, God's sovereignty meant that he would not sin. It may be that this is an issue similar to the tension between election or predestination and personal responsibility. Because we know in God's sovereignty that someone who is chosen will be saved. And yet we know that we must persevere to the end. Scripture teaches both, doesn't it? We have to make a choice and yet the Bible teaches that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We've looked, we won't, we'll be looking at that scripture in another context. And so I believe this, this is, I, I wouldn't fall out with someone over peccability and impeccability because both agree that Christ did not sin. And, and there, are, in, in, there is a problem with holding that he could have sinned 
and there's a problem with holding that he couldn't have sinned, if you see what I mean. So what we must hold on to is that his temptations were real, as real as they are for us. Because if they weren't real, it would make the whole thing rather a nonsense, wouldn't it? And we know that they were real because the Bible tells us that. He was in all points tempted as we are. And we know the reality of temptation, don't we? So did the Lord Jesus. Well, I commend to you John Volvard's um, treatment on the topic. I don't know what you make of John Volvard, but I found him quite helpful. So uh, that's the internet uh, link. Again, Matthew will have it if you would like it. And I shall email these notes in any event. Having explained the two natures and two wills of Christ, one belonging to each nature, we can go to the scriptures which speak of the Lord Jesus' relationship with his Father to determine whether each reference is to his human or divine will or nature. Wherever the Lord Jesus speaks of his submission to his Father's will, then he's speaking as a man. But where he puts himself on an equality with God, then he's speaking or acting as God in his divine nature. In John 6, verse 38, we read, I am come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Here the Lord Jesus is unmistakably speaking of his human will. The key is the context where he speaks of doing the will of him that sent him. He was sent by God the Father as a man. Now, this, I haven't had time to go into what theologians describe as the sending motive, motive. It is true that the Father sent the Son, but Philippians 2 tells us that the Lord Jesus willingly took on human flesh. So it was not a command to an obedient Son in that sense that he must obey. It was a willing act of the Lord Jesus to take upon human flesh. So the fact that we read sending in Scripture does not imply subordination of the, the, the Son to the Father in eternity. In Gethsemane, we see a classic example of the Lord Jesus praying to his heavenly Father as a man. We see his human will and the divine will in apparent conflict. His human will was not to go to the cross, but he was praying for the divine will, the will of his Father, which was his divine will to be done. We read this in Luke 22, verses 40 to 42. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So I think we can see there, this is the conflict. Bringing the human will into alignment with the divine will. Praying as man for God's will to be done. Being strengthened, we read, by angels. But yet, why would he need to be strengthened by angels if he was God? But he was praying as a man because he was a man, as well as being God. Complete manhood. John 6, verse 58, we read, As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father... So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Again, this is, the, this is the Lord Jesus speaking as a man. As God, he did not live by the Father. He's, he had an independent existence to the Father. As John Calvin put it, he, was, he is autotheos. He is generated by the Father, but he, is, he subsists on his own. Another verse that has been the cause of confusion is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I've mentioned that already, where we read, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, 
and the head of Christ is God. Again, this is to be understood as the Lord Jesus as mediator and man. We know, that the, we know this because Paul is writing to the church. As a general statement, we can say that the head of every man that has ever lived is God. Every man will, after all, face the judgment of God. After death, the judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Yet this, is, this statement must be seen in the church context because Paul was writing to the church about church order and specifically the order of men and women in the church. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ because he shed his own blood to purchase his bride. Therefore, he is the head of the church. As we've already seen, Hebrews 3, verse 6, describes him as a son over his own house, which we've noted is plainly speaking of the church because the verse goes on, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Therefore Christ is head of the church as the mediator and as man, while God is the head of Christ as mediator and man. But as the Son of God, he's equal with the Father and therefore cannot be described as having God as his head. Another verse that has caused some confusion is John 17, verse 24, where the Lord Jesus speaks of the love that the Father had for him before the foundation of the world. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now there are some who say that Christ was speaking about his relationship with God as the Son of God within the Trinity. And for example, here is another quote from the good God by Michael Reeves, who makes this point. Now God could not be loved if there was nobody to love. He could not be a father without a child. And yet it is not as if God created so that he could love someone. He is love and does not need to create in order to be who he is. If he did, what a needy, lonely thing he would be. Poor old God, we'd say. I don't like that expression. I think it's irreverent, but there we are. If he created us in order to be who he is, we would be giving him life. No. Father, says Jesus, the Son, in John 17, verse 24, you love me before the creation of the world. The eternal Son, who according to Colossians 1, is before all things, the one who through him all things were created, the one Hebrews one calls Lord and God, who laid the foundations of the earth, Hebrews 1 verse 10. He it is who is loved by the Father before the creation of the world. The Father then is the Father of the eternal Son, and he finds his very identity, his fatherhood, in loving and giving out his life and being to the Son. We see here that Michael Reeves has confused the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Lord Jesus Christ as man and mediator. He is assuming that because the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, then he must be speaking about his eternal relationship with his Son. But don't forget that this is the high priestly prayer that the Lord Jesus is praying. When the Lord Jesus prays the prayer in John 17, he's praying it as the great high priest and mediator. Remember 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When the Lord Jesus is praying to his Father, he is praying as man and mediator and not as God. After all, it would be perfectly meaningless for God to pray to God because God would not be God in those circumstances. Similarly, the Son was not given glory by God as God. He had his glory as God. Going back to John 17 verse 24, the Lord Jesus prayed, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. First, where he was. He was referring to heaven. John 14 verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, 
there ye may be also. The glory given to the Lord Jesus was the glory relating to his work as mediator. We know that the glory was revealed to his followers because John 1 verse 14 tells us, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 11 verse 4, the Lord Jesus spoke of him being glorified when he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. He was to be glorified because it was a look forward to his victory on the cross over death. And that's why many funerals, the minister walks down citing the scriptures, I am the resurrection of the life and the life. From John 11, speaking of course of the resurrection of Lazarus at that time. We see then that the Lord Jesus was referring to, referring to his glory as mediator. The last part of John 17, verse 24, is a continuation of the first. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Note that word for at the beginning. Again, we would expect this to be related to his role as mediator. Yet many, such as Michael Reeves, understand this to be speaking of God's relationship with his Son as God within the inner life of the Trinity. Yet what is said of Christ here is also said of us as we read in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see, just as we are chosen before the foundation of the world, before we were ever created, we were chosen in love. The Lord Jesus, before he came to earth as man, was loved as the mediator he would be. I think it's vital that we understand that the love that the Father has for the Son is related to his role as mediator. Because otherwise we find an asymmetric love. Sorry, that's a long word. It means an unequal love, a love of the greater to the lesser, which cannot refer to the love of, the, of God the Father for his Son as God. It cannot be a lesser love. And God is love. And there's a danger with taking out an attribute of God such as love and making that the chief, as it were, relationship of the three in the Trinity. Because God is his attributes. And we've got holiness. God is holy. God is just. And so I follow John Gill in holding that this is talking about the love of Christ as mediator. That is the safe way, in my view, to interpret that verse in John 17, verse 24. And then finally we have 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also be subject unto him, that put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. What is Christ going to surrender to the Son but his mediatorial kingdom? What he has won on the cross. His people will be surrendered to God and God will be all in all. I hope that has helped unpack for you those scriptures and given you a guide as you read those scriptures perhaps with fresh eyes and other scriptures like it. And to me, it is a wonderful truth, a wonderful distinction, understanding the Lord Jesus is fully God and fully man. Praise the Lord. Now, it's ten past six. I would like to deal with another subject. I may go beyond five minutes. Have I got permission or not? Okay.
Um, I'm sorry, I overprepared. I'd like to talk briefly about another error. And I should say that I've been greatly helped by our brother Martin Erdman, who has borne a cross over the Trinity. I expect some of you have heard that. He had to leave his church because of some wrong teaching. Um, actually, I believe, involving uh, the man, the gentleman I referred to, Mr. Reeds, Dr. Reeds. Um, so he, he, he's, he's paid a price for holding firm to the doctrine of the Trinity. And I would just like briefly to mention the social Trinity. It's another aspect of a wrong teaching on the Trinity. Uh, sorry, I see your hand. Is there, I saw your hand raised, sir. Okay. The theory is becoming increasingly popular in evangelical circles today. And so it's important to understand what it is and why it's wrong. The idea is that God is expressed in the Trinity as a community. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are separate and yet indwell each other and revolve together in an eternal communion of love. This relationship of the Godhead has been described as a divine dance, which is a mistranslation of a Greek term called perichoresis, which means co-inherence or co-indwelling and mutual interpenetration. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but this idea of a divine dance, I believe, is, is dangerous, but it's actually promoted by a popular evangelical teacher, including Tim Keller, We've got a picture coming up on the screen. In The Reason for God, which many of you may have read or certainly been aware of. And this is what he says. The inner life of the triune God, however, is utterly different. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is the Bible tells us Sorry, so it is, the Bible tells us. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this. Perichoresis. Noti notice the root of our word choreography within it. It means literally to dance or flow around. Well, while Tim Keller purports to follow an orthodox view of the Trinity, we can see that he has introduced a novel concept. The first thing he's done is to seek to look inside the inner workings of the Trinity, which we've seen is a dangerous mistake in subordinationism. The technical term, I don't think I've mentioned it, for the inner life of the Trinity is the imminence of God. And remember, from what we've been already looked at, we're told very little about the substance of the Godhead, except that we know the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father was not begotten, the Son was eternally begotten by the Father, the Holy Spirit spirates or proceeds from the Father and the Son, eternally. Therefore, the only way of distinguishing between them is that the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten of the Father eternally, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son eternally. We're not taught about how they relate to each other within the inner life of the Trinity. 
but Tim Keller's theory attempts to do just this. The problem then is that if we have three people rotating around each other in the Godhead, then this means that there are three independent minds, since each apparently defers to each other. But we've already seen that God has one will and one mind. So you've got tritheism, not trinity, not one God in three persons. Another difficulty is that Tim Keller and I think Michael Reeds blur the distinction between God's being and his attributes. The Westminster Confession defines the being of God. There is but one living God, sorry, one living, sorry, there is one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts or passions. A list of God's attributes then follows. He is almighty, sovereign, eternal, unchanging, inexpressibly holy, gracious, merciful, infinite, perfect and just. God is omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent. The problem with placing love as part of our definition of the Trinity is that then any attribute such as wrath and justice that appears inconsistent with love is either dismissed or downplayed. Do you see that? That's what's happened here. By placing love as a sort of binding relationship of the three persons of the Trinity within the inner life of the Trinity, the fear of God gets taken out. And we have a distorted theology. Dare I say it, a theology fit for 21st century man, but not a theology which is biblical. Tim Keller provides no biblical support for his theology of the dance, apart from this extract from his book, King's Cross. According to the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorify one another. Jesus says in his prayer recorded in John's Gospel, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Each person of the Trinity glorifies the other. It's a dance. So says Tim Keller. Tim Keller also refers to the baptism of Jesus Mark 1 verses 9 to 11 and to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. However, neither of these passages or the passage from John 17 support the idea of a dance. And this illustrates the fallacy of relying on one attribute of God that is love. As I've already said, there are some worrying implications of this view. The divine dance does not uphold the unity of the Godhead based on essence. The basis of unity within the Godhead is based on the oneness of essence or being, as we've seen. Thus, three persons exist within the same one being. Straying away from this basic concept immediately brings one into the dangers of modalism, tritheism, or subordinationism. Although it must be said that Tim Keller states the orthodox view in King's Cross at pages 6, where he says, God is not more fundamentally one than he is three, and he is not fund more fundamentally three than he is one. However, the problem is that he's upholding God's unity as an aspect of his being by an attribute, namely love. So he's replacing substance with love so that love becomes the basis of unity rather than being of one substance, which is what the scripture teaches. Secondly, the divine dance movements portray the wrong kind of motion within the Trinity. We've already seen that the order in the Bible is from the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew 28, verse 19, we read, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 
John 1, verses 14 and 18, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And then John 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. By obscuring all into the picture of a dance, Tim Keller confounds the Godhead by removing the distinctive of each person of the Godhead, which we have focused on in earlier talks. Furthermore, by claiming that they are all bound together by love, as I've already said, he removes the identifying attributes that John Owen suggests from 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14, um, where the grace is particularly communicated by the Son, love by the Father, and fellowship by the Holy Spirit. And simultaneously, the one being of God is indivisible. I don't know about that, because I think you can find um, these attributes also in each of the other member of the Trinity. But I don't have time to go further at the moment on that. We've already identified the problem of tritheism and the authority structure directly related to redemption is undermined. Whereas the concept of Christ's obedience to the Father as the God-man, which we've looked at, as we've seen, the pattern or order is from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. The sending of the Son into the world does not seem to have a place within Tim Keller's theory. And he goes on to say this, why did Jesus die for us? What was Jesus getting out of it? Remember, he already had a community of joy, glory, and love. He didn't need us. So what benefit did he derive from this? Not a thing. And that means that when he came into the world and died on the cross to deal with our sins, he was circling and serving us. I have given them the glory that you gave me. John 17. He began to do with us what he had been doing with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. So we can see that this theory, while it may seem attractive and make God more accessible to 21st century man, it's not biblical and it distorts the true God by focusing on one aspect, love, at the expense of his holiness and his justice. Friends, I hope that in the time that we've been together, we can see the importance of keeping our doctrine of God strictly according to the Bible, not allowing human reason or a desire to find a new teaching to distort that concept. Um, I was going to finish by um, looking at the worship of the Trinity. I'm aware of the time and I don't want to further trespass on it. But just to say that there are scriptures that enable us to, well we should worship the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That we can pray to the Father and the Son. There's biblical precedent for both. I can't find any biblical precedent for praying to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit points to the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray to the Father. And so, bringing it all to an end, um, there's a lovely ending, isn't there, in Horatius Boner's hymn. Glory be to the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Great Jehovah three in one. Glory, glory, while eternal ages run. And then there's the final verse of a hymn by Andrew Goddard, who was born in 1967. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we in Christ approach your throne. Freed from fear of condemnation, called to worship you alone. 
three in one eternal Godhead. Let us know your will today. By your grace, in power, enfold us. Lead us gladly to obey. Amen.